Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. More hostages and prisoners expected to be released as Israel and Hamas continue their truce. As Israel gathers evidence of sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th, I'll speak to Ruth halpern Kadari, a women's rights advocate who accuses the international humanitarian, humanitarian community of staying silent. Then I'll put that same question to Sarah Hendricks from the UN. And disinformation, deepfakes and division. An Israeli cyber journalist tells me how the war is playing out online. Plus, one of the hidden heroes of the civil rights movement gets his due in the Obama-backed film, Rustin. Hari Srinivasan speaks to leading actor Coleman Domingo. And finally, we say farewell to former First Lady Rosalind Carter with friend of the Carters, James Fallows. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. Well, there's hope in Israel as more hostages are expected to be released as part of an extended truce. But the horrors of October 7th are still being uncovered. Israeli police, along with a civil commission, are compiling forensic evidence, video and witness testimony to document cases of rape and sexual violence against women by Hamas. CNN spoke with witnesses to those harrowing events and a warning that the following testimonies are graphic and contain disturbing accounts of sexual violence. First, take a listen to an Israeli paramedic whose unit responded to one massacre site on October 7th at Kibbutz Beri. He did not want to be identified. The doors uh, I open, it's a bedroom. I see two girls, two teenagers. Uh, I guess 13 or 14 years old. One is lying on the floor, one is lying on a bed. One on the floor, she's lying on her stomach. Her pants are pulled down towards her knees. And there's a, a bullet wound on her, the backside of her neck near her head. And there's a puddle of blood around her, her head. And there's remains of, uh, of semen on the lower part of her back. Thousands of statements and video clips have been collected, but investigators do not have firsthand testimony, and it's not clear if any victims survived. However, Israeli police say dead bodies brought for identification show trauma consistent with rape and assault. One morgue worker discovered, described what she discovered. 
the underwear was often bloody. They just, some of them had underwear on that was very bloody. And it, that was very difficult to see also. We also saw most of the people, the women were, were shot at least once in the body, but then they were shot in the head. And they were shot in the head many times. And it often seemed to be gratuitous cruelty, abject cruelty, because it was seemed to have been done just to mutilate them. The women we saw were not just killed, they were cruelly, cruelly mutilated in many parts of their bodies. Some say those harrowing stories have been ignored by international communities, including Ruth Halpern Kadari, Israeli legal scholar who feels completely betrayed by women's rights organizations. She joins me now. As you might expect, our conversation may include graphic and disturbing accounts of sexual violence. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. This is a very difficult but very important conversation to have. Um, as just a, a citizen and a journalist, listening to what we just played it is quite damning. But as an expert yourself who has been in this field for many years, can you explain to us how sexual violence was used as a weapon of war by Hamas on October 7th against Israeli women? First of all, thank you, Biana, for having me on the show. It's really very important that international media and international communities start paying more attention to this as sexual violence and rape was indeed used as a weapon of war by Hamas towards Israeli society and particularly towards targeting Israeli women and children and girls. It, it's, it has always been historically the fact part of war that women's bodies had been weaponized and were used in order to instigate the most horrific horror and terror within society at large and not just against the individual women who were victimized. It's like it's as if the body of women represents the body of the nation. And when victimizing and violating the body of the women, it is supposed to instill the greatest fear and the greatest humiliation for the nation as a whole. And, and this was premeditated and, and intentionally targeted by Hamas. We, in, in addition to these evidence that you just uh, screened and mentioning the uh, ongoing investigation, there already are statements issued by Hamas terrorists who are being interrogated in Israel. And they clearly say, they, they tell about the instructions and the permission that they were given by religious leader to perform these atrocities. And what's notable when you mention that, uh, the evidence and what you've heard from these interrogations from the, the terrorists who were captured, is that yesterday a prominent Israeli human rights organization, Physicians for Human Rights Israel, is calling now for the International Criminal Court to investigate whether some of these accounts and reports of sexual abuse committed by Hamas against Israeli women on October 7th constitute crimes against humanity. And some of their evidence that they, they list does not include anything that came out of interrogation because they say that that may open uh, a window for coercion. So, so this is separate. This is coming from documented evidence they have compiled from the medical community. How significant is this? It is very significant because Physicians for Human Rights is an 
incredibly credible um, civil society organization. And I'm really grateful for the work that they did in putting all the dots together. This is what I, uh, I am now visiting in Geneva, and I have met with a number of uh, high-level officials, including the High Commissioner of, of, Un of Human Rights, uh, Volker Turk. And uh, I also spoke in front of um, um, many uh, ambassadors yesterday at a closed uh, uh, event and, and presented this kind of uh, evidence and testimonies and, and walked through all the dots together because despite not having surviving witnesses, we do have eyewitness survivor who witnessed a gang rape next to her we do have a paramedic who spoke to a survivor who described that she was raped by four men. And we do have all the other evidence. And I do think that we need to add this to what comes out of the interrogations of the terrorists, because this demonstrates the premeditated plan and the systematic nature in which these orders were actually executed by the terrorists. Recall that the massacre actually took place in 22 locations at the same time. And these horrific images of the bodies that you just described at the beginning of, of this part and the, the testimony that comes from the uh, volunteer in the IDF morgue, uh, they describe the, the same pattern, the same method in which these horrific atrocities were executed by the terrorists in separate locations, in different locations, all at the same time. This demonstrates a preconceived and premeditated plan. And that is why it does amount to crimes against humanity. Can you explain more? Because you've now listed three times that in your testimony and even speaking with us, um, the, the premeditation factor. H how does that play into in the investigation here? The fact that so many cases occurred at the same time with the same extreme brutality, the, the level of brutality you, you warned at the beginning, but we didn't even describe the extent of the brutality that was exemplified in the bodies that, that were found. So uh, the, the, the concentration of all these cases occurring within actually a relatively short span of time because all this was in less than a day. The, all this adds together, it, it couldn't have happened without premeditation and without preconceived orders to exactly perform that. I just spoke with um, the First Lady of Israel, Michal Herzog, on this very issue in, in the last hour, and she expressed what she um, had written about in her op-ed, just her disappointment and, uh, and just real shock and the lack of global outrage, specifically uh, among uh, women's organizations and those within the UN. You similarly have been critical uh, about um, a very hollow or, or lack of um, a response, and, and let's just give our viewers a sense of 
of the TikTok here, because we're talking about something that occurred seven weeks ago now. Um, the U.N. made a statement just a week after the terror attacks that did not mention sexual violence at all. The U.N. then condemned, quote, all forms of violence against women and girls, as well as any use of sexual violence as a weapon of war. And just last week, the U.N. tweeted, we met with Israeli women's organizations and heard about the work of the Civil Commission for Crimes Against Women and Children. We remain alarmed by gender-based violence reports on the 7th of October and call for rigorous investigation, prioritizing the rights, needs, and safety of those affected. Again, this is from UN Women, an organization you've been affiliated with and had been affiliated with for a dozen plus years. Um, not mentioned here was Hamas, not mentioned here was uh, sexual assault and rape of Israeli women on October 7th. And what is your response to the responses thus far? I, I was actually affiliated with the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the CEDA Committee, which is another human rights body that is also in charge in promoting and protecting uh, women's rights throughout the world. But CEDA, as well as UN Women, uh, their response was, was really devastating, was heartbreaking for me, because ne neither of them acknowledged or recognized the existence, the fact that sexual violence was part of the Hamas massacre, the Hamas October 7th attack. And these are bodies whose um, raison d'etre is to protect, to promote, to fulfill women uh, and to protect them from, from violence, all women, in all places of the world, regardless of nationality, of, of, of race, of, of religion. And by not acknowledging this, by dismissing, by ignoring, they are in fact almost, I would say, legitimizing uh, uh, the, the existence of these atrocities. They are signaling, they are sending a, a message that these atrocities can go on unaccounted for. And Hamas already said that they are going to do it again and again, a million 7th of October. That's what they said. So is this the message that these human rights bodies, the international human rights community wants to send to the world, wants to send to Hamas or to other terrorist organizations, that this can go on unaccounted for? Right after our interview, I will be speaking with the Deputy Executive Director for UN Women. Um, she is listening to this interview, uh, and I'm wondering if there are any words or questions that, that you have for her before I turn things over to that conversation. Thank you. I am glad to notice um, beginning of a change of the attitude from UN Women and hopefully from other um, human rights uh, bodies. And I also acknowledge the fact that the head of the uh, UN Women Geneva office yesterday in opening the 16 days of uh, fight of violence against women did refer to October 7th as a, a place where sexual violence against women was committed. So I hope that this signals a change and I do hope that we can uh, continue to collaborate in the future in order to not just acknowledge this, but also make everything possible to prevent further atrocities like that from occurring everywhere in the world. Ruth Halperin Kadari, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate um, your, your commentary and your input. We appreciate it. Thank you.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, let me now bring in Sarah Hendricks, a deputy executive director for UN Women. She joins me from Dubai. Uh, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Um, I am assuming that you heard the conversation with Ruth and uh, her direct message to you. So I want to give you the floor to respond. Thank you so much, Bianna, and thank you to Ruth for her important words. And indeed, UN Women is deeply, deeply alarmed at the disturbing reports of gender-based and sexual violence on October 7th. And as we've said in the Security Council and through various platforms, we absolutely unequivocally condemn all forms of violence against women and girls, especially in the context of conflict. As you just heard Ruth say, this is never acceptable. And gender-based violence as a weapon of war is totally reprehensible. Certainly, we have called from the beginning for the need to protect civilians, including and especially women and girls in the context of this conflict. And we've called for the need for any allegations of gender-based atrocities to be fully investigated with the utmost priority. Is there a reason, though, Sarah, that you can't specifically call out Hamas and the mounting evidence now over seven weeks that Israeli investigators have collected that we've shown our viewers about the atrocities they committed specifically on October 7th? Because I think that's the crux of the issue here. It's not just condemning sexual violence against women and in any war in general. It's specifically what occurred on October 7th perpetrated by Hamas. Indeed. UN Women always supports impartial, independent investigations into any serious allegations of gender-based or sexual violence. And within the UN family, these investigations are led by the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights. And just to provide a little bit of context in terms of UN Women's role, UN Women specifically provides and has extensive knowledge on gender-based violence and provides and supports investigations as we do with all UN investigations. And so consequently, in this context, 
And within the UN system, it is the independent international commission of inquiry, which for us has the mandate to investigate all alleged violations. It is absolutely important for the rights, for the needs, for the protection, for the dignity, uh, for the survivors of violence to be supported throughout a process. And that's why we work through these globally mandated mechanisms. That notwithstanding, we understand and certainly we encourage and support national level efforts. The ones that you've heard about today, the civil commission in Israel, which has brought together women's organizations to document gender-based atrocities impartially. Um, our work will be on the backside of the independent international commission. And so I so hope that you? clarity is so are you satisfied with the pace of uh, the U.N. and U.N. women's response? Because we heard some strong words last week from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, asking why there isn't more outrage from that specific body and any more condemnation from that body. We've heard from officials in Europe as well. So it's not just the Israelis. And I want to play for you sound from the, the First Lady of Israel, who I just interviewed in the last hour, about what she said are the consequences of not speaking out because she's saying they apply to women beyond just Israelis. Listen. When they say I'm alarmed, they're alarmed, I am alarmed, that this is the only, the strongest word they can use. It is very alarming because we need to understand today it's Israeli women, tomorrow it can be others. So she makes that point, and others would argue that in this time frame, you've had many people, some powerful people at universities who run um, w women's assault organizations, fired from their jobs because they are actually questioning the validity uh, of any uh, of these details. I want to, Biana, emphasize again that from the beginning, UN women and the UN system indeed went into action to support the independent International Commission of Inquiry, which, as I said, has the mandate to investigate all alleged violations. This is done not in the public eye. It's done intentionally not in the public eye in order to support and protect the dignity and the rights of victims and survivors of violence. We call this a survivor and victim-oriented approach for a reason. It's important that this is done in that way. And I hope that this is well understood. By us expressing our alarm, by us expressing our grave concern, it is to stand side by side, to look at the horrors of that day and to look them squarely in their eye. Even as we work in parallel to ensure that effective documentation, effective analysis is undertaken in order for there to be accountability. And I hope that that's clear. Yeah, it's, it, it, I really appreciate your time in explaining this. I guess my, my final question to you is, is this type of investigation, these types of responses, the same that your organization would issue for any country that had this type of uh, attack inflicted upon them in crimes as you have responded to Israel thus far? 
Uh, correct. I'm so glad you asked that question because indeed, this is the very same approach. These are the very same tools that we utilize in all contexts where there are grave violations of gender-based atrocities and of sexual violence in the context of conflict. There is no different. We have put our full capacity and support into the process of this independent investigation as such. I did speak just last week with Israeli women's organizations, and I heard from leaders of Israeli women's organizations about what they are doing to document in the context of their own country. We shared and heard from each other, learning from each other, their processes, and UN women in the UN system sharing about our process. It was an important exchange. What was even more important was also us coming together and agreeing on the importance of both Israeli and Palestinian women coming together to drive forward a mandate of peace with both voices at the peace table. Sarah Hendricks, we really do appreciate your time today, and we look forward to your continued investigation into these heinous attacks of October 7th. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Well, now the conflict between Israel and Hamas is also being fought online, where an influx of Israeli and Hamas content is battling for hearts and minds. Well, in the Wild West of social media, it's no surprise that disinformation is rife, something that's coming into stark focus this week. As Elon Musk, the CEO of X, formerly known as Twitter, met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Isaac Herzog. It's a trip that comes just after Musk endorsed an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on his own platform. Well, someone watching all of this closely is Omer Ben Jacob, a cybersecurity and tech correspondent for Aretz, and he joins us now from Tel Aviv. Omer, thank you uh, for joining us. So first, let's talk about disinformation Pleasure. in the form of the conversation that, that I just had uh, with Ruth and uh, the, the official from the UN, Sarah Hendricks. There's a lot of disinformation now just in covering a subject that, that should everyone should agree upon was, as we're getting more facts in, a heinous attack. And yet we know we're starting to hear differing voices on this issue online as well. Talk about the difference between disinformation and misinformation. So I think what we're seeing in this war at a scale we've yet to see or at an unprecedented level is how both nefarious state actors like Russia and, and others, um, but also people who support Israel or Palestine are actually throwing facts under the bus. So we're seeing information and facts being weaponized at a scale that uh, that I don't recall. And I think tech and specifically Elon Musk's as X is allowing that to scale and go viral quite figuratively and literally. I think rape uh, is just one of the most horrifying examples of that. Uh, we have, and we're seeing this online a lot, where allegedly pro-Palestinian voices feel this need to to deny sexual violence and rape against Israelis, violence that was documented by those actually per per perpetrating it. And, and this denial is part of an attempt to help the Palestinian cause. And I think the intention might be good, but this denial is dangerous. And, and that leads us to the distinction between kind of uh, disinformation and misinformation. So disinformation is when, for example, uh, uh, a, a Russian operation forges websites and pushes out fake information that they know is false and they push it out for nefarious contests, uh, for nefarious reasons, as opposed to 
uh, misinformation, which is someone, you know, pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli, for example, sharing something that they believe will help their side, but is actually wrong. And I think what's so interesting is that we're seeing both sides now find the need to kind of deny uh, the other side's fact. And there's something very dangerous about this divide in reality where no one side and anyone believes anymore any form of information coming from the other side. And I'm, and I, and I'm concerned not as an Israeli, but, but as a journalist. And and, I'm, and I think it's very worrying that we've so richly, so quickly reached the state where no side can, 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 we no longer have a shared reality. No one believes anyone and no fact can be perceived, uh, you know, just in its own right. And I think that's very dangerous. Let's talk about Elon Musk's visit to Israel yesterday. Obviously, um, X has come under a lot of scrutiny and criticism for the spreading of misinformation and um, anti-Semitism and uh, some posts uh, that, that he actually endorsed and retweeted and amplified. And nonetheless, he, he came to Israel and had a meeting with the prime minister, with the president. Um, your publication really challenged uh, his trip and the worthiness of it. Um, a piece uh, titled, Israel's repulsive embrace of Elon Musk is a cynical betrayal of Jews dead and alive. So I'm not asking you to endorse uh, or whether or not you endorse that specific article, but, but talk about the reaction to having this man in particular visit now. So I, so I think what's so ironic and, 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 and concerning and terrible about this is that Elon Musk has actually, I think, helped create the conditions needed for this te terrible state we're in right now. So regardless of what you think about his pol about about his politics, uh, or even Netanyahu's politics, uh, there's th this current situation where people cannot recognize that Israelis were were innocent Israelis were murdered and slaughtered on October seventh, while also simultaneously recognizing that civilians in Gaza are also being killed as part of the Israeli response. And this and the situation in which no side can accept a shared reality is based on the technology that Elon Musk makes money off of, and he's actually expedited a lot of these kind of processes. So in the past, post kind of Trump, we saw tons of disinformation mechanisms put into place on platforms like Twitter, and all these kind of all these mechanisms have been rolled back. And I think this this truly terrible kind of division in reality that we're now living through uh, is how Elon Musk actually makes money. And I think it, when you connect that to the politics of Netanyahu, you, you can kind of see why newspapers like Haaretz and people who are concerned by the state of kind of veracity in fact, take issue with this because the reality is that they're allies. There, there's there's almost this kind of international access or this access of it, international technology and local nationalist populist leaders who are invested in this. And I think Netanyahu, because he wants to be perceived as part of this kind of, you know, uh, you know, as someone who plays on the international level, will will meet someone like Elon Musk and give him an easy PR win. But the reality of it is that they're both quite complicit in creating this very politicized reality. And again, in a reality in which we can know we can accept that Israelis were slaughtered and raped, while simultaneously accepting that people in Gaza are, are dying. And 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 I and I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that we can actually establish a shared reality, and and we can say. Uh, you know what what happened regardless of our politics and we can and and we can kind of you know create a for uh, like uh, just a shared sense of reality right and i've seen online on twitter it's just such a good example on x forgive me i've seen the same video used by both sides but with different captions and i think that's just a perfect example so there's there this video of children in cages and and you know a lot of people were claiming it's israeli captives and a lot of other people were claiming it was uh, palestinians that israel had arrested and it was it was an old video from somewhere else and both sides were wrong right but it's such a good example of how Twitter has really helped just create this 
terrible schism in reality. So let's move on from Twitter to a platform that you've actually been quite complimentary of, and that is Wikipedia, because you also report that Netanyahu has abused this platform, if not Netanyahu himself, then some of his supporters by constantly going in and editing uh, his page. Can, Can you give us more insight into that and why it matters? Sure. So, so for many years, I've now report, been reporting about Wikipedia because I think that actually, unlike social media, it is the most important social media online or the most important source of information online. And there have been attempts by different kinds of actors to influence it and skew the content. We've seen this uh, about Israel. So we've seen pro and anti-Israeli forces do information and disinformation war about Israel and Palestine on Wikipedia in English, but also internally and in, in, inside Wikipedia in Hebrew, we've seen efforts by people who are supportive of Netanyahu to kind of help push out his narrative according to which Israel uh, was, or Israel was, uh, what happened on October 7 is the result of a military failure. It's not a policy failure on his part. And we've seen Wikipedia pulled into this fray for the same reason we see journalists and journalism being, being weaponized, because you need credibility. Disinformation thrives off of credibility, right? And and just to take Haaretz as an example, we're seeing on, on tons of websites uh, and tons of uh, social media and places online and on Telegram, misrepresentation of Haaretz's work. People claiming, for example, that we found that there was no sexual violence, which is false. We've we've reported on, on exactly the stuff that you had just now spoken about, right? So we're seeing different attempts to kind of use different prestigious sources to misrepresent the facts. And we've also seen that on Wikipedia, but Wikipedia is better than social media because Wikipedia requires you to check your sources. And that would be like my one big takeaway for like the viewers, check sources, don't share things that, that, that you don't know where they came from. It's such a basic rule to apply and Wikipedia applies it. So it actually weeds out a lot of these disinformation efforts. But it, there, there were attempts by pro Netanyahu supporters to kind of skew the content for sure. Yes. Well, that, and that's why they constantly have to go and re-edit it because as you said, people, exactly, uh, yeah. sleuth, sleuth observers are there watching it and catch it and, and then they go in and, and try to edit it after the fact. Um, Omer Ben Jacob, this is really fascinating. Uh, we'll have to have you back on to just talk about the, the world of social media and, and its coverage and how it's skewing uh, so many um, fact-based issues. Uh, Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sharks have been the subject of lore and legend for centuries. A lot of what we think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, shreds through those stories and separates fact from fiction. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. In every episode, I will tell you an imaginary story. After the story, we rip up and reveal the scientific truths of these fishy tales. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, just moments ago, we saw the first pictures of former U.S. President Jimmy Carter at the tribute service for his wife, former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Jimmy Carter turned 99 in October. He and Rosalind were married 77 years ago. And later, we will speak to James Fallows, who was Carter's former chief speechwriter in the 70s and remained a close friend. But now we want to turn to the story of a man central to the civil rights movement, whose name you may never have heard. Bayard Rustin was a key organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, a confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. and a tireless advocate for equality. He was also openly gay. Barack and Michelle Obama are working to restore the civil rights legend's rightful place in history with their new Netflix film called Rustin. Its star, award-winning actor Coleman Domingo, is getting rave reviews for his performance. 
And here he is speaking with Hari Srinivasan. Bianca, thanks. Coleman Domingo, thanks so much for joining us. First off, for uh, those in our audience that don't know who Bayard Rustin was, you play him, you did the homework. Who was he? Bayard Rustin was a young Quaker from Westchester, Pennsylvania. He was a, a young communist at a time. He was, he played the lute. He sang Elizabethan love songs. He was one of the most strategic minds and a great organizer. And in 1963, he did the monumental task with he and a, a group of what he called young angelic troublemakers. They um, were the architects for the March on Washington. We are going to put together the largest peaceful protest in the history of this nation. How big? 100,000 people. Is he for real? A massive two-day demonstration with enough power to shut down the White House and Capitol Hill, made up of angelic troublemakers such as yourselves, with ideas so bold, so inspiring, the execution will demand all groups draw tightly together and become one. So why is it that we don't know about him? Why is it that it's just not common knowledge in high school history books when we do read about the March on Washington? What I like to believe is, is that his, he has such an impact and he was such a great um, civil rights activist and organizer and strategic human, fascinating human guy. But I think he was marginalized because he was openly gay. That's very clear to me that he was all but erased from the history books and his uh, significance of what he did. Being openly gay in that era is a whole different thing than being openly gay today. I mean, there were so many other challenges that he was facing kind of simultaneously. Well, the thing is, this man was fighting for not only, you know, civil rights, but human rights. And he was being exactly who he was in the world. You know, like why I mentioned why he was a young a Quaker is that he grew up as grandmother. They, they were very supportive of him just being who he was in the world. So that was part of his North Star. Uh, so he didn't think it was something that was um, he should something he'd be ashamed of in any single way. But we do know at that time, you know, being openly anything, being openly gay in particular would cause harm to your not only your body, but also to your livelihood. You could lose your job. There was no protections in any way. So therefore, therefore, he had, had to stay subverted in many ways. So. I think that that's exactly, that was part of his, his struggle. And But yet still, the one thing you couldn't deny was how smart the man was and how courageous he was and how he was, um, everyone respected him in his mind, which is wild. They respected him, they called on him. Um, he was the one who uh, inspired Dr. King about Dr. King's ideologies about passive resistance. These are the things that Bayer Rustin learned, you know, from the teachings of Gandhi and Thoreau and what, like he even says, and he's, even the, the teachings of Jesus, <laughs> you know, so, but, which is wild. So, so you look at history and the way history will shine the light on some and then suppress others. It's a, a bare bones case of that. As the film points out, it's, it's not just the sort of the folks you expect to try to repress him or erase him, but it's people from now, what we would consider the more progressive corners of, say, the Democratic political machine that didn't want him to be the face of this event. They didn't want the event. Martin Luther King, he fit a profile in many single ways. There were other incredible leaders as well, men and women who had incredible voices, yet 
for the movement. I think the movement wanted to gather and just say, this is exactly who we are. The other folks who didn't fit that, and Bayard Rustin was very much an outlier in every single shape and form, the way he spoke, the way he moved through spaces, the way his hair looked, the way he was dressed. He was an outlier in every sense of of the term. So, and also Bayard was also, you know, he was, the struggle was not only with the outside forces, like, People like Strom Thurmond or Hoover, who were who were using anything to um, to make this movement fall apart, but also within his own, you know, with his own brotherhood, you know, whether with the uh, NAACP in particular. In our film, um, Adam Clayton Powell in particular does things, says things to discredit by Rustin because you know it's it's all about power in many ways. Are they expecting my resignation? Some are, yes. Then they're going to have to fire me because I will not resign. On the day that I was born black, I was also born a homosexual. They either believe in freedom and justice for all, or they do not. Tell me about his relationship and friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because in the film, uh, it, it's played out in an interesting way where really uh, an allegation and an accusation made about them is used to, well, silence him politically. Yeah, they were very close. They were like they were like brothers. But of course, we have to examine that this friendship and this sort of tenderness between brothers who really believe in each other's minds and beings was challenged with folks. You know, they, they didn't understand a relationship between an openly gay man and a straight man. I think they could not think of anything but sex in between. Instead of thinking, like I know, it's like, no, that's a deep friendship and brotherhood. Uh, but because, again, it's biases of the world and what they put on it. And then that was also threatening to not only within uh, the movement, but it was, in, it was threatening to outside the movement. People can use it. Um, in any way, shape, or form, and even lie about it. I think, you know, from what I know, I, I think there was a, a picture made, like, created, of, like, uh, Martin Luther King in the bathtub and by a Rustin sitting in a chair not nearby or something to, to be suggestive, to see if it can be used to, like, discredit both of them, to bring down the movement. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of forces. As much as we were, people were coming together for the um, fight for civil rights, there are many forces that were trying to <laughs> make it fall apart within the parties and, and outside of it as well. So I think um, I, from what I knew in the way, in the way that Amel Amin and I played it, Amel is Martin Luther King and he's beautiful. And he's playing Martin in a way as sort of as a young man who doesn't have it all figured out just yet. So you see the relationship that they had of sort of teacher and student, which is what we wanted to experience. And then also see how the thing that I think was important to us is to see the tenderness between these men that one would never really imagine the tenderness between these two. They had to, they had to be intimate to, to really support each other for this fight for civil rights. They had to. So that's what we wanted to explore. Intimate in the loving brotherhood sense, <laughs> you know? So tell me a little bit about what it's like playing someone like Bayard Rustin when you are also a left-handed, Black, gay man who would be 51 when you were acting this role. <laughs> the similarities are staggering. And then the difference are also profound. But what we meet in the middle uh, feels like, it feels so special and it feels like the right thing and the right time. 
um, by Rustin playing him came along at this perfect time in my life and career where I feel like, you know, it's taken 32 years of work to pour into a character like this and to lead a film like this. This is, um, he has so much size and so much purpose and intent. He gave his life to into the fight and struggle for civil, civil rights. That's something that many people can't say. People, you know, people are activists when it's convenient, but this person was like an activist always, even when he was in high school, you know, protesting lunches and things like that. But it, that's exactly a dedication. So I, I think it's a profound privilege because I think that even as I find myself as an artist, finding um, even more mindfulness and intention with what I'm doing is even more important, especially in this phase of my career. So I feel so blessed and so honored that I get to share with folks this man who is such a personal hero to the entire world. It's an, it's an incredible honor. When did you first uh, learn about him? Because uh, as we just discussed, it's his history is not common knowledge. Well, I stumbled upon by Rustin in college. Now, not even in a class or a course. I joined the African-American Student Union because I was very curious about, you know, discovering more of my, my history, having more, um, I don't know, camaraderie with fellow African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So I joined the Student Union and we were having a discussion about the Civil Rights Movement. And then his name came up sort of as a footnote. And it was because I think a few things came up like, oh, Quaker, Westchester, Pennsylvania, openly gay, organized the March on Washington. I was like, wait, what? And then even more so, he sang Elizabethan love songs. He played the lute. I was like, wait, who is this person? And how come I don't know about him? That's strange. Yeah. You know, I'm from Pennsylvania. But also I just thought, like, this is a profound human. Why don't we know his story? And then the more digging I did, I, I finally realized why. I was like, oh, because it was open again. And whoever has direct dealings with Mr. Hoover, let him know that on August 28th, black, white, young, old, rich, working class, poor, will descend on Washington, D.C. And there's nothing he can do to stop it. The pace at which the March on Washington was organized seems staggering on so many different levels, even without kind of racial challenges that we might face today. To try to pull together 100,000 humans to one location uh, when not everybody can afford to fly I mean, there's just layer upon layer. And as I look at it, I'm like, and they did it seven weeks? Oh, yeah. And they did it. Let's all remember, they did it without social media. They did it <laughs> without clicking. And they, it was really grassroots organizing at its best. And he, they did it in less than in about seven weeks time. That's outstanding. So the idea of this strategist in this mind, he was like, no, we can galvanize and get all these groups, whether it's the LCLC, the you know, NAACP, you name it, all to come together. He really believed, I mean, I think that's, he was outside of his, in his thinking, which is great. And also he worked with a lot of young people because I think he also preferred working with young people because he said, they're not rigid. They have, they believe in possibility. They believe in the, the unexpected. They're like, yes, let's go on a ledge and believe that we can actually get this done. And they did it. But they also harness and galvanize unions and coalitions, which is something that, you know, I mean, they understood. I have to gather people and invite the unions to be a part of this. Everyone is a part of this fight in some way, shape, or form. So he knew those are the things and tactics that he knew. Very strategic, very detailed. He knew that he can get it done. So what was tough as an actor? I mean, going through all of the material, seeing pictures of him, seeing maybe video of him in different places, what did you pick up on? What was the hardest for you? Is it his 
physicality? Is it the, the, the accent? Well, you know, I've always done work when it comes to accent work, physical work. I come from the theater, so I think that that's always been a part of what I do. And now I'm a, I'm a bit of a shapeshifter. I, I know that because I think that's what I, I like to fully embody a character in every single way. So those things I knew how to build and I'm very rigorous in my work. So I just work at it and work at it for hours upon hours. And, and um, because I just want to, you know, really honor and get it right and then recede because I don't want people to see the work. I want to actually you just see the person. That's always been my goal. So what kind of homework are you able to do? What sort what is what remains in the archives, what kinds of data were you able to pull up? The strangest thing is there's a lot, which is great. You know, yeah, there's books on his writings. I love, I think writing people's letters are a great key to their mind and the way they think and the way they feel. You can find letters between he and Dr. King. You can find um, some interviews and some debates. And, you know, whether his debates were successful or not, but you just watch him work. He watches the way he speaks which is actually about three actors higher than mine in pitch, the way he moves his body through spaces, which is very sort of fluid and fantastic. And his fingers always move like birds, the way he smokes. So you can, you can, you can find a lot. You were able to meet with several people who knew Byer. He passed away in 1987, including uh, one of his partners, organizers who knew him. What, how do they remember him today? Oh man, I was just uh, texting. I text Rachel Horowitz all the time now. We're, we're very close. And I'm meeting with Walter Nagel for lunch, um, who's by its partner. And they all remember him. First of all, the thing I must say, because it's, it's on my heart, that they were, they said that they've been getting lots of responses that people are calling them. And I think it feels like Bayard's alive again. So people mm. are calling, oh my gosh, that moment in particular when Coleman puts down his cigarette and stomps it out. I've witnessed that many times. Bayard did that. Did you know that? I said, no, she said, there was something, she says, you must, and she says, she's not a spiritual person, she said, but there's something spiritual around the portrayal. It feels like we're calling on each other. And that's what I feel. And they, they feel very proud of the film. They feel proud that his story is out there and his legacy is, um, and his importance is out in the world. Because I think that they, they've always looked at him as like such a, he was always on their Mount Rushmore. And now he, we really do marbleize him now. Uh, with our film, but we also make sure that it's human because he's not a perfect person. He's kind of messy at times in his private life, and that's all to show a real, full human being. So they're, they're very happy, and I, that makes me happier because more than any criticism of the film in any shape or way or form, I feel like um, I needed to know that they knew that I took care of him more than anyone. Yeah. He was uh, posthumously given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, and President Obama and Michelle Obama are part of the sort of producing team of this. Do you have any idea if they've seen it, what their feedback is? They have seen it, loved it, clapped for it, introduced me to the HBCU First Look Film Festival because of it. They are such champions of this film and by Russell's legacy. Uh, they couldn't be more lovely and wonderful with uh, making sure that you know, by Rustin is on everyone's lips. What's it mean to you as a person and as an actor that you got to play somebody who's kind of a personal hero to you? I mean, does it add, I don't know, anxiety or, or stress to wanting to get it right because this is somebody you looked up to? Or how do you how do you process this? Oh, Harry, you know what? It was when I first when I first offered this role 
I thought I could go one or two ways. I could be terrified <laughs> or I don't have time to be terrified. I have to get down to work. That's what I felt. I said, I just have to get down to work and I have to work exceptionally hard because I know that that's what my hero did. He worked exceptionally hard every single day to make this country a little better. And so my job was just to stay focused in on that. I feel like I've been given such a gift, especially right now, when, I, when a film like this is out in the world, when I think we need um, to rally the spirits of people and, and let ordinary people know that they can make a difference just by showing up and being a part of it. Mm. Um, I think we need it more than ever. And I feel very, very blessed that it's, it, it's out right now that I've been, a, that when people get to know who Byron Rustin is, I'm the face of Byron Rustin. That's, beautiful i feel like i know for sure this goes down into my my personal my, my legacy this is a legacy work and, and and i know it is i look forward to you know children and children upon children you know learning about by rustin and knowing that they think of me at the same time actor coleman domingo who plays rustin it's on netflix now thanks so much for joining us thank you Harry. and finally saying goodbye to former first lady rosalind carter U.S. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, along with former President Bill Clinton and former First Ladies, are attending Carter's private tribute service in Atlanta. Her husband, 99-year-old former President Jimmy Carter, is also there. James Fallows was Carter's former chief speechwriter in the 70s and remained a close friend. He joins me now. Um, James, it, it's good to see you. This is really a reflection on the life of Rosalind Carter and what a life it was, a lifetime partner to her husband, married for 77 years, the longest uh, White House marriage in U.S. history. The, the Bushes thought they could, they could trump them, but no, they, <laughs> they got close but couldn't. Talk about um, your fondest memories of Rosalind. So I'll say it, it is fitting for both of the Carters. They've had such a long time out of office, by far the longest time as post, uh, you know, post president and post uh, first lady, uh, for you know, more than forty years. For people to come to appreciate them in a way that was not so much the case, perhaps in the late nineteen seventies when they were in office, and the early nineteen eighties, after this. Um, emotionally and politically devastating loss for them to to Ronald Reagan. And I think that, that what has become clear is both the way that former President Carter himself has invented a new role for the post-presidency and found a way to have people even reconsider what he did in office, and how the role of Rosalind Carter, both as, uh, as his partner all of their lives and as their own independent spokesperson for mental health and many other issues, how they are, I, th I think, now seen in full dimensions that they might not have been if uh, if they had had uh, if we were observing these uh, passings 20 years ago. The first time I met Rosalind Carter was in the summer of 1976. I had started writing for uh, working on the Carter speechwriting team. I was based in Atlanta. We stayed sometimes in the Best Western America's Hotel. And we came to that famous house in Plains, Georgia, the same ones you're, you're seeing in the news now. There was um, Ralph Nader, who had been a, um, a patron of mine. I'd worked for him on several projects, was coming down to have his meeting with Jimmy Carter, candidate Jimmy Carter. I was a sort of um, an intermediary between them. And there was a famous softball game 
between the Carter staff and the press in which Ralph Nader was the umpire for the softball game and Jimmy Carter was the wicked um, underhand pitcher. And sometimes uh, Jimmy Carter was um, was unhappy with Ralph Nader's calls of balls and strikes. But Rosalind Carter was there as sort of the calming influence to, um, to keep everybody in line. And she simultaneously was very clearly the person, Jimmy Carter, uh, then, you know, ahead in the race for president, listened to most and trusted most and also the gracious small town host serving Ralph Nader lemonade on on the Mm -hmm. porch. So it was a vivid introduction to her. I think uh, as time passes, there's come more of an appreciation for his administration, the Carter administration. But it had for a long time been known for tumult internationally and domestically, uh, specifically economically, and the Iran um, hostage uh, crisis. I wonder how the the two of them came to terms with, or if they ever did, with with the label of having the best post-presidency and the contributions they made to the world, um, to their community in, in the years after. So so none of us, except for a handful of people in history, can know what it is like to lose a presidential election. I think that is a profound blow for an incumbent that that um, that is really hard to, to to imagine. So that they encountered that, and for a long time, Jimmy Carter was a shorthand among both Democrats and and Republicans for a quote failed administration. But I think it is worth recognizing number one the enormous power of faith in both of both of the Carter's lives that every modern politician professes to be, you know, to be church going or to have religious faith, faith, it really was and is the animating part of their life. So I think they actually believed there was God's justice that would be reckoned in the long, long term. And most Americans were born in 1984 or afterwards. So most Americans have no memory of Jimmy Carter as president. They remember him as uh, him and, and Rosalind Carter as these uh, benevolent people around the world winning Nobel Peace Prizes, uh, eradicating guinea worm, uh, monitoring elections at various places. So I think it must be gratifying for them to have been recognized in this stage of life for all the good things they did in office and after office. Well, she no doubt was a trailblazer in her own right. Um, Class valedictorian turned down his first marriage proposal so that she could finish college. Uh, She promised her father she would. She ultimately gave in and married Jimmy and was there with him all along the way. I think sometimes it's a cliche to say that that, uh, the woman made the man, but, but, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter, I would imagine would say he would never have accomplished what he did in life without having his Rosie there at his side. Um, James Fallows, thank you for taking the time to talk about her incredible legacy. Abiana, thank you. And that is it for us for now. Thank you so much for watching and goodbye from New York. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 